Welcome to On Water, the Session Magazine podcast. Here we talk to water athletes, entrepreneurs, scientists, and earth-friendly folks about the experience of a life well-lived connected to water. I'm your host, Evelyn O'Doherty. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of On Water, the session magazine podcast for water lovers. We are so lucky to be here today with marine scientist, explorer, photographer, and filmmaker Galen Rosenwachs. Galen, thanks so much for taking some time to spend with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about the ocean. Yeah, that's that's what you do, right? I uh, so I met Galen years ago at a random party, right out here in Amagansett, only to find out she's this world-renowned marine scientist and now filmmaker, photographer, author, uh, as well as public speaker regarding all things oceanic, which is you know to me just sort of mind blowing that there you were you know, down the street from where I live. (laughs) And um, she has conducted field work throughout the world from the Antarctic to the Arctic on icebreakers and as well on the, from the Pacific to the Atlantic oceans on fishing, fishing vessels. So my first question for you, Galen is super simple. What's the difference between the Antarctic and the Arctic? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, for one, the Antarctic is a continent. There's land in, you know, a landmass that is Antarctica. And the Arctic is the whole area above the Arctic Circle. Um, But there is no landmass that is particularly a continent like in the Antarctic. And of course, because of that, there's many different differences. Like we've got glaciers on the Ant- in Antarctica, whereas it's all seasonal. Sea- it's all sea ice that is unfortunately now more seasonal than it was in the past. Um, but so it's essentially, mm. that's probably the main difference. You know, that's the biggest thing. But then of course, you've got different animals down there. You've got different mm-hmm. currents. You've got, you know, so many different things. Um, but one's land and one is just ice. See, that's fantastic. I never knew that. Um, and in, in your all of your ex- expeditions, you've been right to the Bering Sea and and all of these incredible places. Like, what place stands out to you the most as like just one of the most spectacular areas on the planet? Oh my goodness, that is the hardest question to answer, <laughs> and I do get asked it a lot. And I have to say, for me. Um, Different, every place that I go is special in its own way, especially when it's by the ocean or somewhere in nature. So it's really hard to say one. Um, but, you know, I think that I'm, I always say this, but like the east end of Long Island, you know, Montauk mm. and that area, it's my top three for sure. Um, it's just so magical. Um, also, Antarctica is one of the most spectacular places I've ever been that mm. just was so different than anywhere that I had been and so spectacular. And I was there about 20 years ago. So it was so completely untouched. Mm. I was also there in, you know, Austral fall. So everything was freezing and it was a very different time of the year than most people travel down there. Of course. So it was a very special um, expedition and it was so cold and just so raw and all of the sea ice everywhere. And then, of course, you've got all of your tropical places that are, you know, purely magical for other reasons. Um, so it's it's really hard to say just one because I really think everywhere I've gone mm-hmm. um, is so special. Well, I love, love that you just said that the East End of Long Island is in your top three. Because I feel the same way. Like, no matter how much I travel, when I come home, I'm just blown away by what we experience here. Yeah, I mean, it's just so stunning. And the marine life we have is just wild. I went, like, in all seriousness, I went two weeks ago. I paddled, uh, I went stand up paddle boarding off of the beach in Bridgehampton. 
and with a couple of friends of mine, and we went, um, well, we went to an undisclosed location. How's that? <laughs> Perfect. And we found a bait ball that was just teeming right next to shore and sat there on our paddle boards and watched from outside the bait ball, right? We didn't yeah. want to have any interaction, but watched humpback whales feeding mm-hmm. for like an hour, mm-hmm. like, it, you know, within, within distance that... I was nervous enough to keep backpedaling. Yeah, no. And I've had a similar experience in the Bay in Montauk on the most magical day ever. And I saw the bait balls. I saw birds plunge diving everywhere. Mm. And it was, you know, I just grabbed my paddleboard and went out and I was like, I don't know exactly what I do. I'm doing. This is probably not the safest thing on the planet. Exactly. Um, I just saw the bait balls. And then once I got out there and there were no boats, fortunately, it was so still. It was one of the most perfect days. Um, it was in November. So it was like uncannily warm. Um, and all of a sudden, two humpback whales came and were lunge feeding around me. And I had menhaden on one side of my board. I had bay anchovies on the other side. Birds wow. everywhere, turns and different gulls. And then all of a sudden, these two whales. And I just would hear them. And I wouldn't even know exactly where they were. And then I turned and then there they were. It was just stunning. So mm. I feel you. I feel you on that. And I was just at the beach yesterday and I saw a humpback lunch feeding, you know, just, yep. I, was at a, I was at a beach cleanup and then we just looked out, there were fish bait, there was bait everywhere. And then, Oh, just a casual humpback whale, you know, no big <laughs> deal. It's like, and growing up, I never would have expected that. So it's just so wonderful to see. It, is it, I mean, so whenever I have an encounter like that, you know, I know, I know, I understand climate change. I know ocean acidification is, you know, at risk and but whenever I, we have those experiences out here, I can't help but feel like everything must be okay. You know, like in some way, like on the east end of Long Island, like things are things are doing well, right? Because we have such a, just an incredible marine life uh, in the last several years even. Yeah, well, a lot of really incredible things have been put into place to protect things. One, we stopped killing whales, you know, back right. in, the, in the mid 80s, novel concept, let's not yeah. kill one of the smartest creatures on the planet. Um, and so because of that, if you think about it generationally, we're now generations of whales removed from that moratorium. So now we're seeing them come back in greater numbers. So there's just more humpbacks than there have been, you know, in centuries. And then on top of it, we've also protected their bait fish. We've protected the menhaden from persanes. So, you know, no longer are the humpback's favorite food being turned into fertilizer or cat food. Instead, they're left in the ocean um, for them to eat. So, and then, you know, there's a lot of other protections. And of course, other things are, you know, um, a little bit more in trouble and there's still plenty of issues, but we are seeing this incredible rebound of life and diversity and then, of course, with climate change, we are seeing some warm, warmer water species come up, mm-hmm. which is a little, you know, distressing or it's a change or whatever it is. You know, we're seeing spinner sharks that you would normally not see here. We're seeing some tiger sharks. We're seeing more temperate water, warmer water species right. come in. Um, so we just sort of hope that they kind of stay at bay. And certainly we're going to get cold and they're going to have to move back south. Um, but in the summer, we're sort of seeing a new diversity of life, which is both exciting from the standpoint of we get to see it and then a little distressing if we think about why they're, why they're here. That's so important. So thank you. Thank you for that, like sort of, uh, marine life health (laughs) check (laughs) (laughs) because it is, I mean, so it's great to hear that seeing those whales is a positive with regard to the, uh, restrictions, regulations that have been put in place, right. So that we are seeing more abundance, but at the same time, you know, the fight, the fight is still on, you know, to sort of, to take care of what's happening in our oceans. Definitely. Yeah, no, definitely. We can't, we can't become complacent because we see one thing doing well, you know, we saw striped bass out on the East end, you know, rebound tremendously, but then we've overfished them again. So, you know, now we have to put more strict um, regulations in place so that we can hopefully save them from, you know, declining to where we had to put that moratorium on them you know, a while Absolutely. back for them to rebound. The beauty of the ocean though, is that it is so resilient that mm. with just a f- little bit of care, 
it just comes back and it's just incredible. You know, nature is resilient generally, as long as you don't put too many stresses on it. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's really important. Right. And, uh, yeah, as long as we don't put too many stresses on it, we have a chance of regenerating, right. The, the health ecosystems that are in there, um, yeah. which I also, I just wanted to mention, right. So Galen also in her, passion for protecting the specifically our world's oceans founded the global ocean exploration um, which is an organization dedicated to bringing expedition science to the public through photography writing film and um, and public speaking right Mm -hmm. so what i love about this is there are so many organizations out there right there's a lot of that greenwashing where people are raising awareness about the changes in the ocean or, you know, climate change is such an overused word at this point. But, um, but what you're doing is so specific where you're creating films, documentaries about what scientists are doing to understand the changes that are happening in our environment. And as I told you right before we started, one of uh, the actions I took was I watched your film. It's called Palau coral glimmer of hope uh from your website which was Mm -hmm. such a great encapsulation of what you do about um you know highlighting these groups that are actually studying coral uh coral colonies in order to help protect them from uh bleaching right and and the effects of that can you talk a little bit about that experience with palau and that group of scientists uh, from that experience yeah absolutely i was an academic scientist for the first part of my career mm-hmm. and the thing that frustrated me the most was that nobody knew what we were doing mm-hmm. and because of that that's when i left academics and i decided that i wanted to help be the voice for the scientists doing this incredible work to bring you know that they're working to understand all of these gloom and doom scenarios that, you know, we hear in the news media and that people like to dwell on, but there are hopeful stories and Palau is one of them. So yeah, I was lucky enough to team up with three scientists, a group of a team of scientists from three universities um, to tell this story. It was funded by the national science foundation, their work. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately they were able to bring me along to, to tell this story of how they're working hard to understand how corals in a warm, acidic environment are surviving. Because in Palau, there's two different marine environments. Um, one is the near shore under these ro- incredible rock islands. I mean, Palau is so stunning. Mm. From any, any ocean lover um, needs to go to Palau. I mean, it's just <laughs> so incredible. Um, and plus, they've also, as a government, have, you know, understood that ocean health and ecosystem health and, you know, nature is important. So they've protected it as much as they can. You know, it's hard to protect from everything. Mm -hmm. But there's two distinct environments in Palau. There's the rock islands, which we think about Palau, you think about these really cool islands sort of studying this beautiful, clear blue water. But in the water, it's very warm and acidic. Mm-hmm. So very much like what the ocean's going to look like, you know, or is mm. projected by the IPC, IPCC for the future. But then they also have these incredible offshore reefs that are exactly the quintessential perfect reef. And in both of those environments, they have the same species of corals, but they've learned to live in different ways. And the ones in the inshore warmer water have adapted and traded off certain things to survive in that water. So they're more hunters as opposed to the other Mm. corals that photosynthesize for their food. And they're looking at, and these scientists were working at the symbiotic algae and the molecular mechanisms by which this was happening. So the glimmer of hope was that we've got this abundance of coral or these diversity, this diversity of coral in these warm waters so that there Mm -hmm. will be corals in the future. It will just look very different. And scientists are working so hard to understand, and maybe there'll be ways that we can use this understanding to protect our reefs as well. Wow. So what I'm hearing from you there is that the coral itself, right? And I know coral is, uh, I think you even said this in the film, it's one of the most productive diversity of organisms on the planet, right? Like it just holds so yeah, the much. Coral reef. The, the coral, coral reef, reef is. Mm-hmm. And then coral, of course, is an animal. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, so... 
it's an it's an incredible animal colonial organism that's living, but it's forming, you know, these incredibly diverse ecosystems and it's reliant and these ecosystems are reliant on coral, which is an animal. So it's pretty incredible. Right. right. So it's like a real, like it's a symbiotic relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Where one thing can, you know, hinges on or affects the other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and from what I understand in that film, right. So the scientists were studying, thermally tolerant microalgae, right? And the whole discussion about what microalgae is was fascinating. <laughs> yes. Yeah, how do you how do you syn- how do you synthesize that in eight an eight minute film? But yeah, <laughs> so corals, um, corals have so the animal has a symbiotic algae that lives within it called zooxanthellae. And those those organisms are really what will in an offshore reef um, give it its food. They basically farm this algae. Okay. Um, and that's what provides them their food okay. um, through photosynthesis. But then in the inshore, they do have zooxanthellae. They do have these coral symbionts, um, the symbiotic algae, but it's a different type. So it's just fascinating work. It is fascinating work. And, and I, anyway, I learned so much from it just with regard to how, you know, how we might expect to see our coral reefs respond to the warmer, uh, you know, ocean temperatures and acidification in the future, but also that it is resilient, you know, to some of, to some of these, uh, impacts of climate change. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it goes back to what we were just saying about the East end of Long Island as well, right? So all of these Mm. animals, all of these, many of these scenarios, if you've got a pristine system, they can be more resilient. But as soon as you bring in things like decreased water quality or any other stresses, it makes them much more, it makes it much more difficult for them to be resilient. Right. So I'm just, I'm just going to shift to a different perspective here. Mm -hmm. Um, So in, in our recent issue of Session Magazine, we actually have this incredible article uh, written by Dr. Stephen Shepard about an organization called Reef Renewal USA, where they are, uh, they are growing bits of coral in a, you know, in a contained nursery and then bringing them out to the coral reefs and reattaching them to help against coral bleaching, right? Which, and this is happening off the Florida Keys where it is, especially this year, right? Temperatures have been in the triple digits and the, and the coral reefs off the keys are just, they're in trouble. I mean, Dr. Stephen Shepard and this organization, they actually had to move their nurseries because the water mm-hmm. temps were too warm where they had them. Um, anyway, so, but from an outsider perspective, like I understand why coral reefs are so important, but like, why should we care? Like, how does this impact us as humans to have a concern about what's happening in the coral offshore? Well, I mean, the number one thing for me is always, you know, we shouldn't be the reason that nature doesn't exist, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I think inherently the value of nature and our natural world and things like corals and the fish on coral reefs and sharks and all marines, all different species should inherently be there. Right. We should Mm -hmm. do whatever we can to protect them for their sheer beauty and diversity and how incredible they are. Now, of course, most people want to think about it in different ways. And there's different ways that you can think about it. One is from an economic factor. Mm -hmm. Many lives are dependent on coral reefs. Many tourist industry, a lot of the tourist industry is, you know, reliant on people going diving and snorkeling Mm -hmm. and enjoying these reefs. So there's economies built around that. Um, So for that alone, you know, there's a dollar value that's associated for major economies around the world that are based on this. Mm -hmm. Um, Then also a lot of fisheries because people do, Mm -hmm. there are fisheries on reefs. So that's again, another monetary value. And then I think just from, you know, a standpoint of a healthy ocean, you know, corals should be there. Um, And, you know, you can't say that, oh, without a coral reef, we won't have oxygen, you know, but <laughs> certainly with, you know, all of these fish, it all plays a role. So, you know, to have a healthy ocean means having healthy ecosystems like coral mm-hmm. reefs, where mm-hmm. there's just a tremendous abundance of diversity. It's one of the most um, biodiverse ecosystems on the planet. Bio, that's the word I was looking for before, biodiverse ecosystems. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's such a, it's such a 
poignant term. Thank you for that, right? So it's just even that diversity, right? If we're concerned about extinction and losing balance in some way or another, right? We start where we can. And that to me says, okay, so if we can focus on these um, these areas that have coral reefs, right? Like there are things that can be done. And part of your work is highlighting what scientists are doing to preserve and protect them. Then that in turn gives us a little bit more, uh, a little bit, I don't want to use the word control, a little bit more, um, uh, I don't know, autonomy, right? A little bit more understanding of how the balance of the oceans can be preserved. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, the best no, and, you know, and, <laughs> and, and selfishly, I just really think that a world without coral reefs and without coral reef fish and that incredible colors and the jewels, the jewel tones that are there and all mm. of the cool, amazing animals that live there um, and algaes and sea fans. And, you know, um, it's just really depressing to think about it, not not having corals. All that beauty. <laughs> so, all yeah. that beauty. I mean, yeah. I, I certainly got into loving the ocean because I spent some time on a reef in Indonesia when I was a little girl and I just blew my mind. So, and I just remember that shimmer of color when I got in the water, mm-hmm. not knowing what any of it was. And to think that, you know, that wouldn't be there is something I don't want to think about. Right. Me neither. All right. So now on to our, our next conversation, which is your favorite topic, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about whales. <laughs> sure. Well, I have lots of favorite topics when it comes to the ocean. Everybody used to joke around with me as I was growing up and that there was really nothing in the ocean I didn't like. So That's I can so great. go on and on about all of it. But yes, right now, sperm whales have taken over my life in a big way in the past few years. So. So it has been so special. I mean, so I was lucky enough to hear Galen speak at the New York City Explorers Club um, in Manhattan after the release of your new book, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Sperm Whales, the Gentle Goliaths of the Ocean. Do I have that right? Yes, perfect. Perfect. And uh, and the evening at the Explorers Club was kind of amazing, right? It was like a it was a winter night, but it was so hot. Do you remember that? And it was teeming rain outside and at the same time it was packed like there was not there was not one seat available (laughs) in that room with these people who were like hanging on to everything you said it was just it was such a like a magnetic experience you know and um you know and you talked about your your book uh you know sperm whales gentle goliaths of the deep the ocean and um, and you talked about the backstory of it, about you and your mom taking that expedition. And I was wondering if you could just walk us through that, that a little bit, that experience of going with your mom, which is such a sort of special part of it Yeah. after understanding the relationships of sperm whales with one another. No, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you were there for that evening because for me, it was extremely special um, as well. And I couldn't believe the turnout with how hard it was raining outside. (laughs) It was such a miserable evening. So, but it was really special because I had people like you in the audience and a lot of my dear friends and then other people Mm -hmm. I didn't know. So I love the Explorers Club in that place because it's just, you know, you just that building, you really feel attached to exploration history. So it's always an honor to speak there. But yeah, this story really started when I was a toddler. And again, it ties me back to Long Island when I was a little girl and there was a sperm whale that stranded by Robert Moses State Park. Mm-hmm. And they brought him, not knowing what to do with this whale, they brought him into captivity into a boat basin thinking that he was going to die and they were going to do a necropsy. Mm. But instead, what happened was this incredible community of people, watermen, veterinarians, I don't know, the list continues, um, and tens of thousands of onlookers came to see this whale. And then obviously the veterinarians and watermen were working on the whale. And they had him there and he wasn't doing well and they didn't really know what to do. Um, 
And then they swabbed his blowhole and figured out he had pneumonia and they were able to set him free. And this was unprecedented. It still is unprecedented. Mm -hmm. But for me, as a toddler, when this all happened, my mother took my brother and me to see this whale. And it was the first thing that I had ever seen from the deep ocean. Mm. You know, I wasn't even two years old, but I remember that, those moments like it was yesterday. And I think it's because it made such an impression that every time we would go to the beach, which was very often, we would talk about, you know, seeing this whale feisty in the mm -hmm. boat basin. So flash forward a few decades after, you know, being on many, many expeditions all around the world. But this young whale it was a 23 foot sperm whale, um, about a five or six year old male whale. Um, named Feisty, mm -hmm. um, always came into my memory because I would go to the beach and we would always talk about seeing him in that boat basin um, and what it was like to look into his eye. And then just mm -hmm. one day I sort of went down this like rabbit hole Googling Feisty the whale. And it was just a few years ago. Learned so much more about him and how incredible this rescue was mm -hmm. um, that I decided that it was time for me to one, tell this story through a film of feisty and then also reconnect with sperm whales. Cause that is really what sparked my curiosity for the ocean. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky enough to meet um, a gentleman who could help me get the permits necessary to get in the water with whales, with the sperm whales in Dominica in the Eastern Caribbean. So I proposed a research proposal because my question really was, well, where should feisty have been when he right. stranded as a five-year-old young male whale? And then, of course, given that he survived because he swam away strongly 45 years later or so, where would he be as mm. a full grown male sperm whale still roaming the ocean? Because they live up to 70 years. They have a very similar life history to people. So I was able to go down to Dominica to get in the water with whales. And because my mom had introduced me to sperm whales as and to the ocean in general um, as a kid, and she loves the ocean still. She's quite the water woman. Mm -hmm. um, I took her with me on, on these expeditions and it was sort of the take your mom to work day um, instead of take your daughter to work day. <laughs> so it was really fun. I taught her how to shoot underwater and she took her job extremely seriously, which I was so proud of how well she did. And I mean, she has the back cover of my book because it's a picture <laughs> of me that she shot. I have all of these incredible images of me because who better to, you know, mm -hmm. capture these moments than your mom. But for me, what was really special is the number one question we were asking is where should Feisty have been? And when we slipped right. into the water with um, these whales, what we saw was the mothers with their calves and their calves stay with them. The female calves, they stay together their entire lives, the females, in these incredible matrilineal units. And then the males will leave the unit, will leave the family, but not until they're adolescents when they're 12 or 13 years old. So Feisty should have still been with his mother and his mm -hmm. siblings and his aunts and his grandmother. Um, but instead, they got taken in by the community of people. So it was just so incredible to be able to sort of answer that question and see this incredible dynamic of whale families to see yeah. how they nurture each other. And it's so tender, these incredibly tender moments. We saw nursing. We had these playful moments where the mom would like leave her baby with us to babysit it because they oh can't goodness. dive as deep as the other whales, as the adult whales. So it was just magical. And one point we were in the water with three generations of whales, a grandmother, a mother, and a baby. And there I was with my mother. I mean, mm. it was just, you know, and I was watching the baby learn from the mother and the grandmother. I was watching it imitate the mother. And, you know, it was just something that was just so incredibly mammalian mm -hmm. um, and human-like um, without really anthropomorphizing. It was just, wait, I right. would totally do that with my mom, you know, or vice versa at this point as we're both adults. But, you know, it was just incredibly special to be there with her. But then just to spend the time in the water with the whales. And we've done four expeditions for the project. Um, and really to spend the time learning about these whales and seeing how they act together and just learning who they are. I can look in the eye of one of these whales and know which whale it is. You can identify wow. them. You know, mm -hmm. they have different scars and things, but also just how they act. 
and there's a pure curiosity. Of course, I'm curious about them, but they come up to you and, you know, are curious about you and they very much allow you into their world and look at you and lock eyes with you. And it's just, it's nothing like I've ever experienced before or even knew that I should expect or could happen in nature. It was one of those just, mm-hmm. you know, mind boggling, mind altering events that, you know, I knew that they would be really cool, but I never expected to fall in love with them how I have. Hmm. So amazing. I, um, I also read a, another article about one of your expeditions and the author told such a good story about, you know, getting in the water with the whales and, you know, having that up close experience with such a, a, a you know, gigantic creature of the deep and, and also how the, um, the sperm whales clicking, right, was also mm-hmm. a way for them to identify you, right, your size, your, you know, that, that, um, that special sound that they make, right, the uh, echo, echolocation. Can you talk a little bit about that? I find that so interesting, like how the whales clicking is not just about like spotting an object, but they can use it to identify size and, and just even much deeper experiences of who we are. Yeah. So one of the incredible things about sperm whales is that they seem to have language. They have codas and clicks that are in specific patterns that identify them. So it seems that they go up to one another and say something like, hi, my name is Galen. You know, (laughs) I'm from, you know, New York. Um, And they do something similar with their clicks and codas. And they may even it may even be a much more complicated language. There are certainly people working on that now. Mm -hmm. But they also use the sound for echolocation and sonar and to learn about their environment. Um, That's why they have those huge heads because it's filled with the spermaceti organ, which is how they detect sound and all of this and how they make their sound is also from their heads. So they will click on you and then whatever comes back to them, they are getting all kinds of information. And I would love to know exactly what they're learning, you know, whether it is, you know, what I've had for breakfast or just Mm -hmm. my size and shape and, you know, I don't know. And I don't know that we'll ever know exactly what, what they are learning, but it's pretty incredible to think that they are definitely sizing you up as they're clicking on you. And they're definitely, you know, it's like different patterns that they're clicking on you as well. Sometimes it's faster, sometimes it's slower. So I kind of feels more like an MRI machine or something that, you know, it's like penetrating into your soul in a way. Um, And like I said, I would love to be able to plug into their brains. They have the largest brain of any animal on the planet. Um, and to learn about what they know and also how they're perceiving the ocean around us. Right. It's just, exactly. I mean, to me, that's one of the coolest things to think about whenever you think about any ocean creature, but particularly sperm whales, cause they are so smart, um, is like, what else do you know? What's invisible around <laughs> me to me? What are you sensing? You know? Um, but I've had just these incredible moments where they've locked eyes with me. Then they've like gone vertical. They've opened their mouths. They start clicking on me and you're like, mm. okay, well, what are you doing? And sort of how you said, like when you were watching those whales feeding, mm-hmm. you were backing away from the situation. I find myself often backing away from the whales, not because I'm scared. I just don't want them to touch me because they get so close and they're wow. choosing now. Like I'm not swimming. I'm not doing anything. They are coming up to me sort of like a puppy, you know, <laughs> and you're just like, I'm not supposed to touch you. I'd love right. to hug you, but I'm not supposed to. <laughs> and I know I shouldn't. And, but I don't know if that's what you want and I can't tell. And you're really big. And, you know, so all these yeah, things are going yeah. through your mind, but you're feeling the clicks on you. And they're somehow having a conversation with your body that you don't even know what they're learning. So yes. it's so neat. And they just seem so wise as well. Like you look in their eyes and there's just something more there. And you're just like, what is it? I want to know. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it just sounds like such a mind-blowing experience. I um, yeah, I recently read uh, James Nestor's Deep, mm-hmm. right, which is all about free diving, but he gets deep into swimming with whales at one point, and just that um, the clicks and the codas, and and just what you said, like how he felt like his soul was being read by these sounds, you know, that were echoing through his system. It just yeah. Anyway, 
I can't, I can't even, I, I, I hope for an experience like that someday, but I, I love hearing your story, um, vicariously. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it's there, it's just incredible. It's just, it is really mind boggling and it's so it's hard to describe, but you know, and they're such great free divers. It's like, can I just have a little bit of your skill so that I can, you know, I can hold my breath a long time, but certainly can't dive thousands of feet down and hold my breath for 45 minutes because that would be a right. dream. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Right. So, but so sperm whales are the deepest divers of the ocean. Is that correct? They're the second deepest. The Cuvier's beaked whale can dive deeper. Ah, and, and how deep does the sperm whale dive? Do we know? We, do we don't know. We don't, yeah. we don't know. Um, because all of this, they have broken sensors and things, but I think that they found one. Oh, I can't, I can't recall at the moment off the top of my head, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, they found one uh, tangled in a sub, like a seafloor cable that was quite, quite deep, much deeper than they thought that they dove. How um, is there a cable on the seafloor? Oh, there's many cables on the seafloor with like telecommunications lines and cable lines oh, and things okay. like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, we talk about them laying new cables, but there's already lots of cables down there. Wow. Wow. It's just, it's just really extraordinary. Um, and then the sperm whales, you know, the little bit I know, right. Is that, that, uh, what's it called in their head? The sperma, sperma, spermaceti, spermaceti mm-hmm. right. Is also how they are able to send those clicks and receive them, right? Like somehow the spermaceti allows that. that they receive dis- it. Yeah. They receive it with the spermaceti and they have another, um, organ, area called like the monkey lips that they think is part of where they make the sound. I don't think the spermaceti organ um, organ. is what Mm -hmm. makes the sound, but there's a few different parts to it. And then that's also how they receive it. Extraordinary. So explain a little bit how you took those diving experiences and Dominica and turn them into your film and this incredible book, which I'm so happy I have signed by you. Like, just give us a little bit, like, how did that happen and, and where, where are you now with those projects? Yeah. So, um, the book was one of the most welcome surprises, best, (laughs) best things that's like ever happened to me from a cold Mm -hmm. email. Um, I had started the project as a film project that was going to be fully independent. So I was fundraising for it to do the expeditions. We did one scouting expedition Um, which was a colossal disaster where we saw no whales and we almost got washed away by a flash flood. And it was just, it was an experience. Um, (laughs) But um, then when we went back, um, we actually had a writer from Outside Magazine with us. Mm -hmm. um, And I ended up on the cover of Outside Magazine. um, And it was talking about the project, the film project, um, which is still in production. We are in the post-production now trying to get it to the finish line um, soon, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Um, But really it was about telling the story of Feisty and how he inspired me and then reconnecting with whales. And so it was very much a film project. um, And then the pandemic hit and Mm. I got this email from Rizzoli um, and said, Hey, do you want to publish a book with us? And from my publisher, Jim, And I thought it was a joke. I was, (laughs) for anybody from the East End, I was driving down Industrial Road in Montauk when I saw this email. It was um, in, the magazine had come out in June of 2020. So it was, Mm -hmm. you know, not the very beginning of the pandemic, but we were locked in, not knowing what was going on. It's for someone like me who goes on expeditions for a living. um, Mm -hmm. Basically everything was canceled and, you know, sort of like what's going on in our world. How are we going to sort of make, you know, all my expeditions were canceled and I didn't right. know what to do. I mean, fortunately right. I was living in, I live in Montauk, so there's plenty of beautiful things to do. Um, but it was, you know, a little bit of a tailspin. So I got this email. Of course I reached out thinking it was a joke. One of my friends was pranking me or something, but it was <laughs> not a joke. And six months later, I was lucky enough to sign a book deal with Rizzoli to make this coffee table photography book about the whales that I had fallen in love with. Um, on that second expedition down there where we had a magical 10 days. Mm. But I also knew that I didn't have enough images for that. So as Mm -hmm. we were doing, we were basically in post-production for the film then, 
already. However, um, as soon as I knew I needed more images, we sort of hit pause on finishing the film because we were going to go back. And I knew that I there was see. so much more to tell um, if we had more time and more funding. So we ended up doing two more expeditions um, down to Dominica to finish the book. Um, and, you know, tens of thousands of images of these incredibly magnificent creatures, babies, moms, mm. grandmoms, mm -hmm. male whales, uh, newborn babies, nursing, all these incredibly tender moments that I was able to capture um, photographs of um, for the book. And then, of course, writing the book and telling the story through, you know, words and then getting to geek out a little bit with nerdy captions about whales and sperm whale facts <laughs> was, was probably my favorite message I got from them because we were going to do light captions. And then they said, can you just nerd out on sperm whales for us? And I was like, <laughs> I'm a scientist. Of course I can. Right. So right. it's a little bit more work, but I think it, it became a book that people can actually learn from while enjoying the beautiful images and seeing these incredible behaviors. So, and right now we're finishing the film, which is really exciting. We're in post-production and we're hoping that it will be done soon, um, you know, but we want to also make sure that it's done right. Of course, of course. And when, when, when it's done, right, because inevitably it will come to fruition, what, how do you plan on releasing that? So as of now, it'll be released into, we'll start out with film festivals and then we'll Great because it is a fully independent product um, project and it still is fully independent. Um, we'll then figure out distribution um, from there. Unless anybody who's listening right now has some ideas and is interested in chatting, please reach out to me. Um, but what's been really, <laughs> what's been really fun about having the book during the process of finishing the film is that I've been doing a lot of speaking um, yes. with the book and I've gone all over doing it and to see what people relate to and get their feedback and um, to tell this story to so many more people and get it out there um, has been really fun and really helpful um, to define what we should focus on in the film. So I, I think it's almost a blessing in disguise that all of this has happened has it, how, as it's unfolded while, it, while it's been difficult throughout um, because it's going to be just so much better because of it, even though it's taken a little bit more time. Isn't that fantastic, right? Where something like it feels like you're being derailed, but it actually helps you go deeper. I, f I feel like yeah. that's what the whole COVID experience was, you know, like it's if those who were paying attention, it's like everybody got radically derailed, but then we had to figure out how we were going to continue. Right. So right. it, you had to like dig in a little bit deeper and I'm, I'm not surprised that that's, you know, the experience, um, with your film. And the, you yeah. know, and the book itself, like what a, uh, what a joy, right. To have somebody just discover what you're doing and turn it into something that's so, you know, I'm a, obviously a literature person, you know, so it's like, so like just literary based and like a heavy coffee table book. Like that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, it was really a dream come true for me. You know, I've been a photographer for years and I've had a lot of my that's work cool. published. Um, this is my first book. Um, and if I was to have scripted it, I don't know that I would have known that my first book would be all on sperm whales. On sperm um, whales, right. But at the same time, it's so fantastic that, you know, a creature that inspired me really to start my mm. career, you know, inspired me to love the ocean is sort of my first book, um, really a deep dive into it. Um, but I'm extremely proud of the book. And um, I think it it celebrates the whales in a really nice way. I love that. Does the book give you opportunities? Cause I know you also, you do a lot of educational speaking, right? Mm -hmm. Like yes. in classrooms and, and working with, you know, schools and universities. Does, does the book give you additional opportunities to create those sort of uh, learning moments or, or speaking at schools? Yeah. I think what it's done is some people will, some people know who I am and, you know, will invite me and then other people have discovered my book and reached out to me. So I think by having something tangible or maybe reading a review of the book or an article about the book or something like that um, certainly has expanded the reach of where I've been able to speak and where I've been sharing the work. You know, I've it's been amazing. speaking at a lot of different museums some whale conferences and, you know, aquariums and things like that. 
So, and then of course, classrooms as well. So, um, you know, it's always fun to talk to students. Um, so as much as possible. Yeah, just for me, it feels like it closes that circle of, you know, you discovering feisty when you were so young and, you know, and then just having the experience of Wales with your mom and, and then being able to give the experience back, right, to young children who hopefully could be inspired as well. Absolutely. Of, yeah. And, and one of one of the uh, aspects of your book that I really just love, and I, I'm just, I'm talking about a geek fest, I just... <laughs> am over over like whelmed by the fact that your uh, introduction is written by Carl Safina, you know, who, who if I had, you know, an icon in the, uh, you know, sort of the environmental world, it's him, right? It's because he's such a, I don't know, such a, such a well-respected, well-spoken, uh, um, heartfelt guy, you know, around the environment. And when I opened your book and I was like, good heavens, like Carl <laughs> Spina, you know, wrote your introduction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've known Carl since I was in graduate school. Um, really? so yeah, mm -hmm. so it's, it's been a long time that we've known each other and become friends. Um, mm. but yeah, I was on a boat tagging tunas during my PhD and Carl came aboard while he was writing for song for a blue ocean. And um, he came out tuna tagging with us. He knew my advisor really well. And um, that's when I met him. And then over the years, you know, we had reconnected. We would run into each other at different places. And then, you know, when I was writing the book and we were trying to think of who would be the right person to write the forward, um, we just, you know, my publisher and I were like, well, what about Carl? And, you know, and I asked him and he was gracious enough to say yes. And so I felt really mm -hmm. lucky, um, both because, well, for a lot of different reasons, he was the perfect person. One, because he's Carl Safina, an incredible mm -hmm. nature conservation mm -hmm. writer. Two, he's second, he knows me for forever. And also, <laughs> uh, the one of the best parts is that he actually saw Feisty, the young whale, at, really? that was stranded that inspired it all. So he was a PhD student at the time, I believe in New Jersey. And when he had heard about the whale, you know, he's, a, he's from the New York area. So he came out to see feisty. So it was just like everything aligned. And it was like, you wow. know, this is the, you know, he was already going to be like the, like such an amazing choice, but it, he really ended up being the absolute perfect choice. And then it's just so nice because again, like I've known him. So it's really a sort of this book in very many ways is very full circle. Mm -hmm. Sounds it. Um, where can people access the book now? So it's available online. You can buy it from any fine bookseller as well. So very many independent bookstores carry it. Um, on the East End, there are signed copies at many bookstores. Um, but yeah, so anywhere from Amazon to Barnes and mm -hmm. Nobles to Rizzoli, um, their website as well. Um, but you can really find it in most places. And if you like to buy from independent bookstores, which of course I encourage, mm -hmm. um, you know, they can order it for you. So or you could have a really much better book buying experience if you find Galen on her current book tour. Right? And Absolutely. Go, to, go yeah. to one of those. Go to one of those uh, speaking engagements where you are present to you know to uh, purchase the book, and then you will actually sign it right there. So, yeah. do you have a couple of more of those lined up for the rest of 2023? Like, what does that schedule look like? Um, so, 2023, um, right now, there's only a couple of periodic ones, um, and then okay. we'll dive back in in 2024. It's been a very busy summer, so it has. I've got mm -hmm. I've got one more scheduled, um, which is actually this week. So, I think. Um, maybe a little too late for everyone, but then there'll certainly be more. So the best place to find out about them as I schedule them is on my website and also on my Instagram at Galen Go Explore. Okay. At Galen Go Explore is your Instagram and yes. your website is galenrosenwalks.com. Org? Dot com. Dot com. Okay. Yep. com. Yeah. Great. And we'll, we'll have all of that in the, um, in the information on this podcast, like, so people can just click that link. Yeah, because those are the, the, the best places and I will be updating it as we have more more things to come. But I would love to meet all of you. So please do come to anywhere. It, 
It's so. great. I've I've sent people to Galen's book talks <laughs> in uh, I think one in Maui, right? You met my yeah. friend Lisa. Yeah, Maui and, was a blast. And then you were in Nantucket not so long ago, and I told my friends uh, Patrick and his girlfriend to go. I don't know if they made it, but anyway, I'm I'm, a, I'm just a huge fan, Galen. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, um, no, it's the, a blast. Oh, it mu- it must be. I mean, and a life literally immersed in the ocean, right? Which is which is what you love the most. And one of one of the takeaways I've always had from Carl Safina is I heard him speak here out here at the art barge one night uh, years ago. And he pretty much wrapped up his whole philosophy with saying that he just tries to bring people to the water so that they can fall in love with it. And that like he does, right? Mm -hmm. Like he loves it. And then hopefully once we're all in love with it, we'll be moved to take care of it. Exactly. uh, Yeah. And I, and I feel that coming from your book. I mean, your book and and the upcoming film, I'm sure, you know, or just that, like you bring the water to a person who maybe we're not there at the moment, but just standing in a bookstore and you open that book, you're in, you're doing a deep dive into the big blue. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's very blue. Yeah. And it's, and it's very hard not to be captivated by what you see and you want to learn more. And um, so thank you, you know, for just, just pure inspiration for just loving the ocean even more. Um, do you have any other projects beyond the film that you're currently looking at or working on? I've got a few in the works. Um, nothing concrete enough to share right now, but Understood. it'll be very exciting. Um, there's always so much more material. Um, and I have been working on a few other things while, while promoting all of this as well. So I'm excited to release some of that material as well. You're um, a busy lady. Yeah. yeah. But you know, I'm always looking for the, the next project and the next exciting story to tell as well. And, you know, collaborations are key. Um, which is what's so fun. So, you know, you never know what'll come next. Um, but there's so many great ocean stories to tell that it's sort of never ending, which Mm. is exciting. And there's always something to learn in the ocean. I personally learn something almost every time I'm out on my boat or on my paddleboard or swimming or whatever it is, I'm learning something new about the ocean. And I think that's one of the things that's just so incredible about it. I completely agree. Galen, thank you so much for being so just generous with your time today and and taking the time to speak to our, our listeners here on the podcast. I can't thank you enough for just being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of On Water. We certainly love bringing the myriad and diverse group of characters from our water community to you to share their experiences. If you enjoyed what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. This podcast grows out of the publication of our quarterly print magazine, Session. Session celebrates the ways in which we all, as water lovers, engage in our world's aquatic playgrounds, from surfing to foiling, kiting, stand-up paddling, and more. We encourage you to visit our website at www.session-magazine.com. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.